one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for what should be a fun Monday episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. That is right. The first episode since Thursday. We have had so much basketball since then. By the way, yes, I went to the wedding. Yes, everybody made it down the aisle. Yes, I missed a lot of basketball on Thursday and Friday, but it was worth it to see my friend marry the love of his life. Congratulations to Ed and Maggie. But I was back in front of the TV uh, Saturday and Sunday, and we have a pretty straightforward Aaron Torres pod, honestly. Jam-packed, loaded show. We are going to hit on the four regional finals, the four Elite Eight games, and start to look ahead to a wild, wild, Final four. We're going to open UConn demolishing Gonzaga. What does it mean for UConn? What does it mean for Gonzaga, which will almost certainly lose Drew Timmy now? From there, San Diego State Creighton. Was it a foul? Was it not? Miami, Texas. Was the Norchad Omir Brock Cunningham? Was it a foul or was it not? And finally, we wrap with Florida Atlantic. I think I have something very interesting on them. So stay tuned there. Loaded show, fun show. Before we get started, a few announcements. One, first of all, if we have anybody that is going to be in Houston for the Final Four, specifically UConn fans, listen, I see the download numbers. This show does very well in the state of Connecticut. And I don't think we don't even talk UConn all that much. But I bring it up because I will be in Houston this week. We are doing an Aaron Torres pod get together in Houston. Um, I think some. UConn prominent alums, you know, maybe a famous basketball player or two may be there. Can't give away too many secrets or details right now. But I bring it up to say we don't have all the details yet. It will be Friday around happy hour time. So if you're a UConn fan, you're going to be in Houston. Feel free to DM me on Twitter at Aaron underscore Torres on Instagram at Aaron Torres pod. Make sure to get on the list. I think this is going to be exclusive. I think it's going to be small. You're going to want to get your name in early and then I'll get you some details Friday night, probably in the downtown Houston area. Stay tuned for that. Uh, And also just a quick thank you before we get started to our sponsors. One Betfred Sportsbook, the Betfred Sportsbook app. Betfred was all over it all weekend long. Already have odds out for the 2023 Final Four games. UConn, a five and a half point favorite against Miami. Uh, Florida Atlantic, a one and a half point underdog against San Diego State. By the way, spoiler alert, that's who's in your Final Four. Uh, So thank you to Betfred. Incredible offer I'll share with you later. And thank you, of course, to Bracket Fanatics. Most people's brackets are busted at this point, but we are still giving away $1,000 in cash prizes, $500 to the first place winner. So if you're in the Bracket Fanatics Bracket Challenge, make sure to check your bracket, uh, and we will announce the winners after the NCAA tournament last week. And remember, Bracket Fanatics is here for you not only in March, but for any sport with a bracket. Tennis, soccer, cricket, college basketball, you name it, they got the brackets. You can start your own bracket. You can join another person's bracket. Oh, by the way, you can do pay brackets on there. Everybody pays on the site. You don't have to go chasing people around. You can do free brackets. Again, all things brackets. Bracket Fanatics has you covered. Thank you 
to break it. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day and the topic of the day. Listen, you know, I think we could obviously start in any of the four regions. The final four is officially set. But as we kind of go game by game, region by region, I do want to start in the lovely city of Las Vegas, my alma mater. I think everybody knows by now, but for people who do not know, grew up in Connecticut, went to UConn, uh, graduated from UConn, got the degree, got the piece of paper. They were playing in a regional final on Saturday night against Gonzaga. They were two and a half point favorite in the Bedford Sportsbook. And I will tell you, they did not win by two and a half. They won by a significantly larger margin of victory. UConn in dominant fashion goes out to the West region, takes care of Arkansas, takes care of Gonzaga. And now how about this? They are going to the sixth finals four in school history and the sixth final four since 1999. By the way, I was told at the wedding this weekend, uh, the groom, Ed, who is a listener of this show, he told me that some of you don't like when UConn does well because I get insufferable. I don't know if I get insufferable. All I do know is this is going to be a tough 10, 12 minutes as we discuss this UConn-Gonzaga game. So forgive me if I am not very fun to listen to. But let's get into the game itself because, uh, again, you know, I think this was, as we look at both this game, this tournament, this season for UConn as they are now again in their sixth Final Four, um, you know, it, it was complete domination in a season in which UConn has weirdly dominated for huge stretches and struggled for a big stretch in between. I'm not going to sit here and lie and say it was easy and I always saw this coming. I did not at all. I had UConn in the Elite Eight in my bracket. I did not have them going to the Final Four, but they have had amongst the most interesting seasons that I can ever remember. In November and December, they were totally dominant. They started the year 14-0, 14 wins by double figures. I think the first 13 might have been by double figures. Um, and were just completely dominant in every facet of the game. Went to the PK-85. They beat Alabama. They beat Oregon. They beat Iowa State. Uh, had a couple other nice wins when they got back to the East Coast. But I just bring it up because for, I think, probably about a six-week stretch, I think everybody thought this was the best team in college basketball. Then they get into league play, and they struggled. I'd be lying if I didn't. Listen, you guys and girls listen to this show. There was a moment in time where I gave up on UConn this season, where I, I, I criticized the coaching staff. I criticized the players. I said, I think they're playing too many guys. So, again, I can't sit here and pretend that I'm perfect and I saw this coming all along. But what I will also say, I watch every game. And really about late January into February, you did see this program and this team starting to turn a corner. I believe it was eight of their final nine that they won. Their only loss was to Creighton at Creighton. Uh, you know, during that stretch, obviously we now know that was not a bad loss at all, but they really got rolling, got into the Big East tournament. And then outside of the opening round against Iona have dominated this tournament. Now, as far as the Saturday game itself, a couple things stand out. You know, the first thing I would say, I do think I'd be remiss and I'd be lying if I didn't mention the single biggest play in that game, which was Drew Timmy's fourth foul. Drew Timmy, All-American at Gonzaga, who, for as critical as I can be of a lot of people and a lot of things, he has been an amazing college player if this was the end of his career, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Um, but I think when I look at the Drew Timmy situation, it goes back to what I've said many times. In life, two things can be true. So Drew Timmy, the Gonzaga star, picks up his fourth foul with 17-39 left in the second half. It was a 10-point game at that point. And I'd be lying if as an unbiased observer trying to remain unbiased to do my job, 
that I said that that wasn't a bad call against Drew Timmy. That was a bad call. That was a tough call. Um, but I also think the second thing can be true as well. I don't think that fundamentally changed the outcome of the game. May it have not been an 82 to 54 win against UConn. Yeah, I think if Drew Timmy never picks up his fourth foul, um, you know, with 17 minutes left and has to go to the bench, I don't think UConn wins by 28 points like they did on Saturday night. At the same time, Gonzaga shot two of 20 from three. Uh, I don't know this for sure, but I would assume it was something close to the worst shooting performance they've had in years. On top of that, they missed 10 foul shots on Saturday night. So the Drew Timmy foul sucked, but the better team won and the more dominant team won. And now UConn rolls to a final four, whereas I'm recording, Betfred doesn't have odds out yet, but I believe they will be the favorite going into Houston. As we look ahead and, and really look back, let me just say this, because I, I do want to get to some of the Gonzaga aspects. And then we got a lot of other things to talk about outside of UConn steamrolling everything. But I do want to take a minute. Give me a minute to share a little bit about this UConn program and specifically the incredible job that I think Dan Hurley has done with this program. Because I, I, I do think when a UConn wins on a Saturday night to go to their sixth Final Four since 1999, there's this presumption of, well, I mean, you know, of course UConn's going to the Final Four. They're UConn. That's what they do. Everybody wins at UConn. And to a fundamental degree, like, that is true. The last now three coaches, Jim Calhoun, Kevin Ali, and Dan Hurley, they have won, They have gone to Final Fours. The last two, Jim Calhoun and Kevin Ali, have won national championships. And we will see if Dan Hurley can replicate the success of his two predecessors. At the same time, to say that because Dan Hurley is at UConn, that winning was guaranteed, that could not be further from the truth, okay? Because at the end of the day, I don't think people realize how tough of a rebuild Dan Hurley had when he got to UConn. I think it's, oh, they're UConn, they're always going to be good. How, how tough could it have been? Well, what I think a lot of people forget, yes, Kevin Ali won a national championship in 2014. What a lot of people forget is that UConn immediately cratered as a program after that and as we've all joked about since then it's very clear that Shabazz Napier and Ryan Boatwright were probably the reasons that UConn won that national championship much more than Kevin Ali but you go back Kevin Ali stayed at UConn for four years after that national championship here's what he did 2015 NIT 2016 they make the NCAA tournament losing the second round but here's the thing they had to win games at their conference tournament they ended up winning the conference tournament but if they had lost in the opening round of the conference tournament, they probably don't go to the NCAA tournament that year. They hit a three-quarter court shot at the buzzer to force overtime. They end up winning, and I think double or triple overtime. And so if UConn doesn't win its opening round game of its conference tournament in 2016, they don't go to the NCAA tournament. And then 2017, UConn has a losing season. 2018, UConn has a losing season. So on the one hand, Dan Hurley inherited a program that made one NCAA tournament in the previous four years before he arrived. But here's the other thing I think a lot of you forget. And I know a lot of you have forgotten because a lot of you have texted me about it. During that stretch, when Dan Hurley took the UConn job, UConn was not in the Big East. So when he took this job, he didn't have Madison Square Garden, Big East tournament, Fox contract, um, playing against Villanova, Creighton, St. John, Seton Hall, Providence. He didn't have any of that to sell. UConn was playing in the AAC against nobody. So that's no disrespect. Houston's good. They're leaving for the Big 12. Memphis is a good program. But for the most part, you know who he was selling against? 
oh, we're going to play Tulsa. Oh, we're going to play Tulane. I've told the story before on this show. I have a buddy who was an AAU coach around that time, 2016, 2017, whatever. And he always used to joke with me. He said, Aaron, you know, he, he had a McDonald's All-American in his program. He said, Aaron, the kid wanted to go to UConn. He goes, but he ain't playing against, I'm not letting him play against Tulsa and I'm not letting him play against Tulane. Like, I'm not doing it. And so the kid went somewhere else, whatever. But that was what Dan Hurley inherited. And I think it's easy to forget now. It was not an easy decision to come to UConn. And there were people that told him that he shouldn't. The same year that UConn opened, Pitt opened at the same time. And there was about a two or three day stretch where it was a big thing. Like, should Dan Hurley take Pitt? Should he take UConn? Now it seems like a no-brainer. But at the time, UConn was coming off back-to-back losing seasons in the AAC with no guarantee they were getting back to the Big East. And people said, take Pitt. You're in the ACC. UConn's past might be brighter, but is their future going to be brighter than Pitt? Oh, by the way, I had people, and people don't believe me when I say this. When the UConn job opened up, Dan Hurley had it rolling at Rhode Island. I had people tell me, literally, people in the media, smart people, well, at this point, is UConn really a better job than Rhode Island? Like, it sounds crazy now. And it probably was dumb back then, and I definitely yelled at people that told me that. But it wasn't, like, out of the realm of possibility. He had two or three really good seasons before he left Rhode Island. UConn is in the AAC. They're struggling. And people were sitting there saying, like, should you really leave that job for UConn? So credit to Dan Hurley. And then here's the other part. He believed in UConn when nobody else did, but he got others to believe as well. He got others to believe in the brand, others to believe what it could be even before the Big East. Now, the Big East certainly helped. He would even, I mean, he has acknowledged it. He has acknowledged it many times. But at the same time, I'm just telling you right now, think about some of the kids that he got to commit during the time when there was no Big East certainty. James Booknight, who's now in the NBA, one of his first marquee commits, committed when UConn was still in the AAC. Andre Jackson, a key player on this team, committed before they ever played a Big East game. He committed a month or two after the Big East was announced. So basically his entire recruitment was with UConn as an AAC school. Adama Sonogo, the star of this tournament for UConn alongside Jordan Hawkins, committed to UConn before UConn ever played a Big East game. By the way, Jordan Hawkins committed to UConn, now a sophomore, um, you know, at a time when UConn had not won tournament games. And so you go on and on and on. That's what's kind of cool, right, is in this transfer portal world, NIL world, everything's fast and furious. You flip over rosters like it's nothing. UConn's had to work to get to this moment. It hasn't been easy, and it hasn't been easy for Hurley even when he got to UConn. Gets there off back-to-back losing seasons in 2018 and 2019, or 2017, 2018. His first year, they have a losing season in 2019. Then his second year, it was 2017, 2018, they had losing seasons. His first year, they have a losing season in 2019. 2020, they struggle early. They get hot late. That was the day, that was the year of the famous clip that you may have seen where he said, you better get us now because we coming. That was 2020. Um, And UConn got hot at the end of the season, but they wouldn't have made the tournament unless they had won their conference tournament. Then in 2021, in the bubble year, they make the tournament, but lose in the first round. Then last year, they make the tournament and lose in the first round in New Mexico State. And so this has been a process. This has been a journey, but I give Dan Hurley so much credit for believing in this program when it wasn't always easy to and getting others to believe in this program 
when it wasn't easy either. And finally, I give Dan Hurley credit for owning both who he is, but who UConn is as well. This is one last thing that I find interesting from the UConn perspective, then we'll get to Gonzaga. But from the UConn perspective, from the UConn perspective, um, this year hasn't been easy. And, and, and outside of, you know, the last four games and early in the season, it, it hasn't been an easy journey. And one thing that I respect about Dan Hurley, he's talked about this a lot. He does not run from the expectations. He embraces them. And, and it's interesting, right? Because obviously we've talked a lot this season specifically about the future of, say, a program like Kentucky. And we've talked about, okay, which kind of coaches would embrace the expectations of Kentucky and which coaches would run from them? And I bring it up because there's a lot of people that you Kentucky fans think you want as your next head coach that I maybe have a little bit of insight into. And I can tell you they would crash and burn under the expectations. And so I bring it up because I don't know if UConn's quite Kentucky. I think Kentucky's probably the most pressure-filled job in college basketball. But UConn's pretty close. You can't just go to UConn, make the tournament, and everybody's happy. That might fly at Notre Dame. That might fly at Penn State. That might fly wherever. It does not fly at UConn. you got to get to the tournament and win. And Dan Early's talked about that. He said, listen, the noise gets a little bit louder at this type of school. But this is what I signed up for. This is what all these players signed up for. And that's what I love about this specific team. It hasn't always been easy. There has been adversity. Um, and they've they've been able to overcome it. So UConn is headed to the Final Four in Houston. Uh, I will be there. We'll figure out coverage when I get there. Again, UConn fans, we're going to try to throw a party. DM me. Hit me up on Twitter at Aaron underscore Torres if you want in. But uh, really excited for the Huskies. Really excited for the Huskies. Really quick, I, I do, before we get to the other games, I do want to talk about this game strictly from the Gonzaga perspective now. If you remember when Coach K lost in the NCAA tournament last year in North Carolina, I did a big segment on who will be the new face of college basketball um, when Coach K is gone. And I said, I think there's only two people because there's only two people and two programs that I believe elicit emotion in everyone. One is obviously John Calipari at Kentucky, and two is Mark Few and Gonzaga. Every time they win, they have the their supporters that are like, see, look how good they are. And every time they lose in the tournament, it's, oh my God, they were overrated. They're the worst thing ever. And so I do want to talk about Gonzaga because I do think every single time they lose in the tournament, it is always a story. But what I would also say is this is maybe their most interesting loss in the tournament for one simple reason, which I'll get into in a minute. Before I do, let me say this. Um, if you think that Gonzaga somehow choked on Saturday, if you think that this is somehow an indictment on Mark Few or Gonzaga, I'm just going to say it. You're a freaking idiot. Watch that game. The way UConn played in the second half, I don't think any team in college basketball would beat them. And as a matter of fact, to take it a step further, I actually was more impressed with Mark Few and Gonzaga this year than I have been in a long time. Because if you look at this, at this Gonzaga roster right now, Drew Timmy is a historically great college basketball player, but he is not an NBA player. And I would argue outside of Julian Strother, the kid who was really good, hit the game-winning shot against UCLA, I would argue that this team, I don't know if it has an NBA player on the roster outside of Julian Strother. And so I bring it up because for Mark Few to get this team to 30-6, and six, I believe, was their final score. They had a win over Michigan State in the Ottawa Conference. They had a win over Xavier in the Ottawa Conference. They beat Kentucky. They, uh, they they beat St. Mary's a few times. They beat UCLA in the Sweet 16. They beat TCU in the, the round of 32. 
I actually thought this was one of Mark Few's better coaching jobs because I think this is probably his least talented roster in about five, six years. I mean, you go back to 2019, they were a, a number one seed. So it wasn't 2019. Maybe it was 2018. I don't know. But it's been a while since he has had a talent a roster this ta- this a, a, as untalented, I would argue, as this year. Again, I believe they only have one NBA player on this roster. I do think, though, so one, don't play Mark Few. This was a bad matchup on paper. Everybody liked UConn, and it proved to be that way. And again, if Drew Timmy doesn't get foul, get, doesn't get in foul trouble, maybe it's at least respectable, if not a 28-point win. At the same time, though, I do think there are two very interesting questions about the future of Gonzaga now that their season's over. One is the future of Drew Timmy. Now, Drew Timmy, for people who do not know, he is a fourth-year senior right now. Freshman year was that 2020 COVID year. Sophomore year, they make the championship game, lose to Baylor. Last year, they lose to Arkansas in the Sweet 16. This year, they lose to UConn in the Elite Eight. And so it's interesting because Drew Timmy has said very publicly, this is the last dance. This is his last go around at Gonzaga. I do think he's going to have an interesting decision to make over these next couple months because the bottom line is that Drew Timmy, like everybody who played during the 2021 season, remember, He's got an extra year of eligibility because of COVID. He can come back next year if he wants to. And I bring it up because he has said publicly, this is the last dance. I'm not coming back. Uh, I appreciate my time at Gonzaga, but it's time for me to do something else. But I will be curious because Drew Timmy is really one of those faces of NIL, a guy that has taken it. He's really what NIL is supposed to be about him. um, You know, CJ Stroud, Bryce Young, guys that have produced earning money because of their name image likeness and what they have done on the court or on the field. Um, So it's going to be interesting because he says he's not coming back, but he has another year and it's pretty understood at this point that he's probably making more playing college basketball than he would as a pro. Some of those endorsement deals, they probably won't be there if you're playing in the G league. Uh, Some of those endorsement deals, they probably won't be there if you're playing overseas, but if you're playing 30 times a year on national TV at Gonzaga, standalone games on ESPN every Thursday night. It's a little bit of a different deal. So one, I'm curious what Drew Timmy does. But two, I also think Drew Timmy has a tough decision to make because what team exactly is he coming back to? And this is where I think the very interesting conversation about Gonzaga begins. Because I do think there is a conversation to be had. And I think deep down Gonzaga fans know it, but they don't want to admit it. There is a fair conversation to be had of has our best window to win a title passed us by. And I know what everyone will say, oh, they've, they've made eight straight sweet 16s. They're going to keep rolling, whatever. Well, here's the bottom line. Look at this roster next year without Drew Timmy, without Julian Strother, who will probably go pro, and without Rasir Bolton, who, of course, was their uh, Rasir Bolton was this season he was one of their best players, but he is officially out of eligibility as a fifth-year college player. He averaged 10 points, 39% three-point shooting. He didn't have a great NCAA tournament, but he was a really good player. You take off Drew Timmy. You take off Rasir Bolton. You take off Julian Strother. That's a lot of talent. And unlike in years past, it doesn't appear as though there is that next wave of guys that's ready to step up. And so it's interesting because when Arizona lost a few weeks ago, we talked about from the Arizona perspective, okay, Tommy Lloyd, this is now your program. All Sean Miller's guys are basically gone, especially now that Kirk Kreese is in the portal. 
time for you to show us what you can do. But at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, I would argue that the Tommy Lloyd influence at Gonzaga at this point is gone as well. And what do I mean by that? How did Tommy Lloyd get the Arizona job? Well, it was because he was the guru international recruiter. And it felt like every year, Gonzaga always had that one to two guys, the international guys. There was always one that was like a star. And then there was always like one on the way up. Rui Hachimura from Japan. My boy, Joel from France. Uh, DeMontis Sabonis, obviously Arvidas Sabonis' son. Now he's an NBA All-Star. You go on and on down the list. There was always that next wave of guys. Well, look at Gonzaga's roster this year. They don't have a single international player on it. Now, they are bringing in a player from Australia in the next recruiting class. But right now, Gonzaga to me is at an interesting inflection point because they were one of the few programs that was kind of immune. They weren't really the one-and-done school. They weren't really this. They weren't really that. They were, they were their own thing. They had a big international you know, situation. They were able to redshirt guys. Guys stayed in the program. I remember saying two, three years ago, they were one of the few programs guys would stay a year longer to make sure they were ready for the NBA. Rui Hachimura, Corey Kispert. There was a lot of guys that could have left a year earlier, decide to come back. Well, now, if Drew Timmy leaves and Julian Strother goes pro, who's that next wave of guys? Now, they're just another program with a bunch of one-and-dones or a bunch of more likely transfers. And I think that they're an interesting inflection point because you go back the last couple of years. Listen, 2019, they were a number one seed. They were good enough to win the national championship that year. They lost to Texas Tech in the Elite Eight. 2020, they were playing as well as anyone when the season was shut down. 2021, the number one overall seed, the year they lose to Baylor in the title game. 2022, with Chet Holmgren and Drew Timmy, they were the number one overall seed as well. And then this past season, obviously a three seed going to the Elite Eight. Not saying it's over for Gonzaga. Not saying it's over for Mark Few. I respect what he's built. But I also do think there is a fair question to be asked of, has their best window passed them by? And what is the future of this program? I'll tell you right now. I'm already starting to put together next year's top 25, top, you know, preseason, way too early top 25. I don't know if based on what they have coming back, that's an NCAA, uh, a top 25 team. Now, NCAA tournament's a different deal. They're still in the WCC as of right now, this second as they flirt with the Big 12. What? Is this a program that's going to keep playing at this level with the changes in college hoops and the changes in that program? I don't know. It is worth noting, and it is worth keeping an eye on. All right, so what I want to do, take a quick break, come back, and when we come back, we will talk about the two Saturday games, or two Sunday games, excuse me. Creighton-San Diego State, Texas-Miami. We're going to discuss those next. Take a quick break. Be right back. All right, we're getting back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook and the Betfred Sportsbook app. It is March. You want to make wagers, and there is no better place to make them than at the Betfred Sportsbook, the presenting sponsor of the Aaron Torres pod and all things Aaron Torres media. By now, you know Betfred's story. Started in 1967 in the UK, over 1,600 shops in the UK, and they have come to the United States and made a major splash. They are the presenting sponsor of the Colorado Rockies, Denver Broncos, Cincinnati Bengals, Aaron Torres Media. And what I love about Betfred, they do more for their customers than anybody. And here's what they're doing for you this March. You can bet $50 on any game this March, any game. 
and they will give you up to $1,111 in free bets. Here's how it works. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app. Go to betfredsports.com. Make your first $50 wager. You automatically get $111 in free bets. But then how about this? For the first five weeks that you are a Betfred customer, you will be insured for up to $200 for the first five weeks. So you you make a few bets, and we're all going to win all our bets this March. But if it doesn't work out, they'll give you up to $200 back for the first five weeks that you're a Betfred customer. So download the Betfred Sportsbook app, bet $50 on any game, 111 in free bets, plus up to $200 in free bets in insurance the first five weeks. That is all you got to do. Betfred Sportsbook, Betfred Sportsbook app. Tell them Torah sent you. Enjoy March, everybody. All right, everybody. I'm back. Going to be back. Going to be back. I do want to switch gears as I scratch my nose, if you're watching on YouTube. And I do want to talk about the other three games. Listen, I'll say this. Gonzaga-UConn was a bloodbath, but everything else was. We got three very entertaining games. So I think what we're going to do is in this segment, we'll go through the other three games. We're going to start with the two on Sunday. We'll start with Creighton-San Diego State. We'll go with, from there, Miami and Texas. And, of course, wrap with Florida Atlantic-Kansas State. First of all, just saying those six teams playing in the Elite Eight to go to the Final Four is unbelievable. But then we got a wild Final Four. We'll, we'll briefly touch on the Final Four matchups. But we got the rest of the week to talk about that. But like I said, sorry, I think I got allergies or something here. But let's talk about the... Um, Let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the Elite Eight games, and let's start with that Creighton San Diego State thriller in Louisville, South Regional six seed Creighton versus five seed San Diego State. And let me say this: for two programs that seemingly have not a lot in common, they actually know each other very well. They played in the NCAA tournament last year in the opener, Creighton rally to win. They actually, how about this? They both played in the Maui Invitational in November. They shared a plane to Maui. So Creighton flew from Omaha to, to San Diego. They both flew from from San Diego to Maui. So they know each other well. It was I thought it was going to be the best game of the Elite Eight round, and it largely was. It largely was. It was a one-point final score, and we all know how and why it was a final score. Creighton, by the way, was a two-point favorite in the Bedford Sportsbook coming in, but it was a one-point final score, and it was because this game ended on a very controversial play, right? So obviously, I think anybody listening to this show probably watched the game or at least saw highlights, but it was a tie game. Uh, first of all, San Diego State got the ball back about 30 seconds left. Creighton was sort of lucky to tie it, the ba- the, the overthrow, Baylor Shireman, you know, blaze it in. So it's a tie game. Creighton actually has a foul to give. So they foul San Diego State with about six, seven seconds left. Then San Diego State inbounds the ball. They get it to Darian Trammell. Uh, he beats Ryan Nemhard off the dribble. Darian Trammell throws it up. And the refs call a foul with 1.2 seconds to go in a tie ball game. And so immediately the question becomes, was that a foul? Everybody by now has seen the video, has seen the clips, have seen the highlights. And you can kind of tell Ryan Nemhard gets beat. You know, he knows the game is on the line. He kind of grabs Darian Trammell. He does not make body contact with him at the top. He doesn't do anything like that. But it was a very controversial call. Darian Trammell makes one of two. Baylor Shireman from Creighton tries to inbound the ball. He throws it down court. It gets tipped out of bounds. San Diego State wins. San Diego State is going to its first Final Four. And so obviously the whole story of the game. Was it a foul? Was it not a foul? Should the season have been decided by this call? Well, 
I'm going to say something a little bit controversial because in general, I am generally let the dudes on the floor decide it guy. Anything 50-50, anything questionable, just, you know, uh, swallow your whistle, especially in a tie game when it can be decided in overtime. At the same time, let me say this. It was a foul. Like, by the letter of the law, in college basketball, that is a foul. It would have been a, a, a foul in the first five minutes of the game, the right before halftime, in the second half, late in the second half, in the final minute. It was a foul. And so... It was a very interesting foul because, in my opinion, it was one that I do think, I listen, I think it was a foul, but I think it could have gone either way. If the refs had decided to swallow their whistle, it wasn't one that was so egregious that I would have sat there and said, oh, that's the worst call that's ever been made. How do you not make the call? Da, 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 da. But it was a foul. But was it so egregious? No. And so if it hadn't been called, I would have been okay with it. It was called, it was the right call, Darian Trammell makes one of two to win the game. And the bottom line is, when I do look at this game, I think this is important to know. The reason that Creighton lost this game was not because of the foul call. That is not why Creighton lost this game. Keep in mind, the reason Creighton lost this game, they were up at halftime, they were in control early, and they spent most of the second half struggling to put the ball in the basket. Most importantly, did you see this stat? Creighton finished in this game. Two of seven, first of all, they only had 23 second half points total, but they finished two of 17 from three point land. And so when I look at this game, here's the bottom line. Here's the truth. If Creighton just shoots four of 17 instead of two of 17, they shoot four of 17, which is under 25%. It's like 23 and a half percent. They win this game going away and it's not even close but they shoot two of 17 from the field from three. They have just 23 total second half points. And when it comes down to that late one call could swing it either way. And I wasn't upset by the call. So now San Diego state is going to the first, their first final four in school history. Let me say this. I am super happy for this program. First of all, for newer college basketball fans, we have a lot of listeners under the age of like 25. It has not always been this way. And I think what, what Steve Fisher and Brian Dutcher have done with this program It's one of the best building stories in college basketball in my lifetime, okay? So Steve Fisher gets to San Diego State in 1999. How about this? They had two NCAA tournament wins total when he got there. It takes a while, but by 2011, that's the famous Kawhi Leonard Sweet 16 team. 2014, another Sweet 16 team. And then, of course, since then, it's been just a desert where they can't get over the hump. 2020 was their best season. 2020, the season is canceled because of COVID. And so the fact that this team was finally able to get over the hump, I think it's really cool. And I also think it's a testament to one person because Steve Fisher built this bad boy, but Brian Dutcher, the new head coach, man, I hope he is a breakout star of this final four, because let me tell you a little bit about Brian Dutcher. Brian Dutcher was a 30 year assistant to Steve Fisher. Brian Dutcher was the dude who recruited the Fab Five. I saw uh, Jalen Rose gave him a shout out on Twitter the other day. You want to hear a crazy stat? I remember talking to Brian Dutcher about this when he got the job. He got Juwan, Juwan Howard. If you watch the, the Fab Five documentary, Juwan Howard was the first player to commit to the Fab Five. And Brian Dutcher was the, the coach that recruited him. And the story goes that he went to watch Juwan Howard play in the park like 32 days in a row to secure that commitment. Okay. Back in those days, there was no limit on how much you could be in touch with kids. 
32 days in a row, 31 days, whatever it is, goes to the park every single day, uh, evaluates this kid, all that good stuff. Stays with Steve Fisher through Michigan. Then I believe he got out of coaching altogether. Steve Fisher gets the San Diego State job, comes as his longtime assistant, and he was essentially an assistant for 30 years. Had other opportunities, could have gone elsewhere, decides to stay with Steve Fisher. But I'm not telling you his whole backstory because, you know, I want to write a book about it. But it's because I think he took an already great program. And I think Brian Dutcher really took it to the next level because I might have talked about this prior to the Alabama game, prior to the wedding, everything that happened this weekend. But what was interesting about the, the San Diego State perspective is that I think they have found the perfect blueprint for their program to have success. And it's funny because everybody in college basketball now talks about get old, stay old. I remember Brian Dutcher talking about that in like 2018, 2019. And what I think they've done better than anything is a few things. One, they have found the balance between development, but then also the transfer portal. And it's so interesting because they were, again, doing this three, four, five years ago. But they found this balance. They are a really nice transfer portal spot. A lot of guys go east, come back west, they need a spot, or they go to the Pac-12, it doesn't work out, they need a spot. But then also, let me say this, and this is a little nerdy and maybe you guys don't care. I think you can argue that this program probably has taken advantage of the the extra year of COVID eligibility better than anybody else in college basketball, okay? Remember, every player in college basketball that played during that 2021 COVID season, they were given an extra year of eligibility to play college basketball because they obviously could have sat out that season. Well, let me read off their roster to you. Leading scorer, Matt Bradley, is a fifth-year college player. Jaden Lede, fourth-leading scorer, fifth-year college player. Micah Parrish has been playing. This is only his third year of college basketball, but he's a veteran. Uh, Lamont Butler, veteran, third-year college player. Jaden Lede, fifth-year player. Adam Seiko, fifth-year player. Agueca Rope, fifth-year player. Nathan Mensa, who was a big part of that 2020 team, fifth-year player. So I did some math, and I believe of their nine guys who play, five of them are fifth or sixth-year seniors, and then another one, two, three, probably four are third- or fourth-year juniors. And so you talk about a team that has taken advantage of that extra COVID year. Top nine players, five fifth-year players or a six-year player. One fourth-year player, three third-year players. I mean, that whole team could go out and drink together after this game. That's how old they are. And I think they've done a better job than anybody of taking advantage of this. And finally, let me let me say this finally, lastly, about San Diego State. I'm happy for that team in this program, and let me explain why. In 2020, and I remember arguing with people about this that year, they had a team good enough to win the national championship. And some people would argue and some people would debate. But this was a team that in that season, they started out 26-0. and They finished 30-2. and And this is who they had on their roster. Malachi Flynn, who is currently balling in the NBA. Matt Mitchell, a really good multi-year college player. Uh, Nathan Mensah, Arope, Seiko, Keisha Johnson, all still on the team from 2020. So I bring it up because that was a team that was good enough to win the national championship. Now, would they have? We don't know, but the tournament was canceled. So I'm happy that this team got that moment. 
Um, and I'm happy that San Diego State is now going to its first Final Four. Finally, what I'll say, we got all week to talk about the matchups. This is a team that can win the next two games on their schedule. If you don't think they're the they're the one team that's maybe physical enough to play with UConn, you got another thing coming to you. San Diego State gets the win. Congrats to them. From the Creighton perspective, listen, I don't know what there is to say. You know, weird year, up and down year. It was a, a, a good year, but not a great year. Start in the top 10. We've been over their story. Ryan Kalkbrenner, their star, had mono late in, in, in late November, early December. They go on a big skid. They end up losing a bunch of games. They rally. They were probably misseeded as a six. And then they go on a little bit of a run. But they fall a little bit short. And I think what's interesting to me is what happens next for that team. Because they are a team that, in theory, can bring back just about everybody. Now, Baylor Shireman is a fifth-year college guy. He's gone. But everybody else on this roster has eligibility left. And none of them, to me, look like surefire NBA players. So Utah about a Creighton team that, you know, this is now, they had a lot of hype going into this past season coming in. They could have another really good team next year. Ryan Kalkbrenner, Trey Alexander, Ryan Nemhard, Arthur Kaluma, four of their top five scorers this year all could be back next year. Don't know what those guys' intentions are. I think at least a few of them will probably uh, test the NBA draft waters. I don't know why Ryan Kalkbrenner is a third-year junior wouldn't test the draft waters. But I just bring it up because, you know, if, if you didn't like this Creighton hype, it could be coming back at this time next year. Uh, so keep that in mind. Let's go to the Midwest region game now. Another game that came down to the wire. Another controversial call. And this was one I actually thought. I actually thought the, the, the call in the Miami-Texas game was more. I thought it was more egregious and more wrong than the call in the San Diego State Creighton game. So let me set the scene. Uh, Texas is playing my uh, Miami. Texas is the two seed in the Midwest region. Miami is the five seed in the Midwest regions. Miami just came off a dominant win over Houston. My pick to win the national championship. Um, and so they come into this game. I think Texas is about a four point favorite of the Betfred sports book. And really Texas was in control for large chunks of this game. They were up by eight and a half. They were up by as much as 13 in the second half before Miami rallied to tie it up. Now, here's where the controversial play comes in. Here's where that controversial play comes in. Late in the game, one minute left, tie game 79-79. So you talk about controversy. Tie game in Creighton-San Diego State, tie game in Miami, Texas. Shot goes up. Brock Cunningham, Texas's uh, forward, is trying to block out Norchad O'Meara, Miami's Big man who is fantastic, by the way. Norchad O'Meara is a really good college basketball player. Actually finished this game with 11 points and nine rebounds. Just a very talented, you know, he's a smaller big guy, but plays hard, attacks the, the glass. So Brock Cunningham, the Texas player, is boxing out, and he's just slowly moving his body back. He's kind of wiggling his butt, shaking it back. Norchad O'Meara jumps up, tries to jump over him, and Brock Cunningham was called for uh, the, there's a foul call and we're trying to figure out who is it is Brock Cunningham doing something. He shouldn't be doing boxing out. Did Norchad O'Meara jump over him? And I actually thought it was a foul on Norchad O'Meara in real time. Instead, it goes on Brock Cunningham. And I'll be honest. I understand the argument of, you know, if an offensive player jumps into a defensive player, it's an offensive foul. Basically that the defensive player is allowed their space to go up. But at the same time, I understand the idea that the rebounder, in theory, should have space to go up and come down. 
but you also should be allowed to block out. And so why that call was important was because Brock Cunningham gets called for the foul. Norchad O'Meara goes to the foul line, makes two free throws. Miami goes up 81 to 79 at that point. Texas comes down, turnover. Miami the other way, scores again. Next thing you know, Miami's walking out with an 88-81 win. From that call on in the final minute, Miami outscored Texas 9-2 to to seal the victory. And so I thought it was a bad call. I thought it was the wrong call. And I think this one, even more than the Crane-San Diego State game, may have swung the game overall. Now, in terms of that, I should also acknowledge, like, it's hard for me to sit here and say that that was the call that cost Miami the game or cost Texas in the game, right? Texas was up 13 points with 13 minutes to go. You can't blame the refs for a call in the final minute when you're up 13 points with 13 minutes to go and you can't hold on to victory. And so ultimately, why did Miami win this game? I'll be honest. It's because Miami's a really freaking good basketball team. Remember, listen, I understand that this isn't the final four that any of us thought we were getting, but Miami was the ACC regular season co-champs along with Virginia. Miami was the number one seed in the ACC tournament. And we can argue the ACC's up, the ACC's down, the ACC's this, the ACC's that. Well, Miami was awesome all year long. And so I'm not totally surprised. Once they beat um, Houston, I thought they could absolutely win this game. And what I would just say is I am so impressed by those guards. Isaiah Wong, 14 points in this game. He's an NBA player. Nigel Pack, he's a little bit smaller, 15 points in this one. And Jordan Miller, I saw this stat. How about this? Jordan Miller from Miami. This is, you want a wild stat. Jordan Miller from Miami became just the second, he went 13 for 13, he went 7 for 7 from the field, 13 for 13 from the foul line, 27 points. Became just the second player in the last 35 years, 32, 33 years to go 20 of 20 in total from a game. The other one, it was Christian Leitner in 1992 against Kentucky. So Christian Leitner, 20 for 20, field and foul line. Jordan Miller from Miami, 20 and 20 from the, seven for seven from the field, 13 for 13 from the foul line. So now Miami advances to play UConn. And from the Texas perspective, I'm just curious to see what happens with Texas. We've talked about Rodney Terry, the interim head coach. Listen, I think at this point he has done enough. But man, you go to, first of all, you got to feel bad if you're Texas because it was all right there. Now, UConn was going to be a tough matchup, but you had an advantageous draw in in uh, in KC. You didn't have to play the one seed in Houston, although I'd argue Miami might just be a better team overall. But you didn't have to play the number one seed in Houston. Um, and the final four was in Texas. And I tweeted this out, and I might have said it the other day, but... If Texas had made the Final Four in Houston, I can't even imagine how tough of a ticket it would have been to get. And so you think about Miami, uh, Texas. They probably would have been playing in front of like 70,000 Texas fans. I'm not even kidding. Stadium holds 85,000 with seats on the field. They're probably 75,000 of them are Texas fans. Instead, Miami advances. And now Texas, we're, we're going to wait and see what happens with Ronnie Terry. As far as Texas is concerned, listen, I'll just say this. I do think a couple things with Rodney Terry. My hunch is they were probably waiting. They didn't want to take away from the moment from the team, from naming him the head coach. I think he's probably going to get the job. I think it's the right move. And I'll I'll add a couple things. Is one, 
I do understand somebody that would say, well, Texas is going to lose everybody. And Chris Beard, to his credit, and we can criticize Chris Beard for a lot, did do a lot to build this team. And this team did have his fingerprints all over it. And so you look at Texas. You know how I said that San Diego State, nobody's taken more advantage of that fifth year, the COVID year, than Texas, than, than San Diego State? Well, Texas is probably number two. Because Marcus Carr just finished his sixth year of college basketball, starting the 2017-2018 season. He was a freshman the same year as P.J. Washington and Nick Richards at Kentucky. Okay, that's how long ago it was. Um, Christian Bishop just finished his fifth year of college basketball, started his career, ironically, at Creighton. We just talked about his team. Timmy Allen just finished his fifth year of college basketball. Dylan Mitchell is probably going to go pro. Brock Cunningham just finished his fourth year of college basketball. And so I bring it up to very simply say, it's going to be a rebuild. And I can see the argument of somebody sitting there saying, you know, they should just go in another direction, but a few things. One, question is, who are you going to get at this point? Like, maybe there's some big name out there that's itching for the job. I don't know who it is at this point. I, I feel like if there was really a legitimate outside candidate, wouldn't we have heard about it by now? Maybe we wouldn't have, but it feels like we probably would have. And two, here's my question on Ronnie Terry. Why can't he replicate what Chris Beard's done? Because at the end of the day, I, I do think Chris Beard, for all his faults and for all the reasons he got fired, what did we talk about on this show when he got the job? I said Chris Beard saw Texas as the next North Carolina or Kentucky. He felt like if I can get to Texas, I can turn that into the next college basketball power because Texas has better high school basketball than anywhere in the country right now. And we've talked about it a million times. Cade Cunningham's from Dallas. Tyrese Maxey's from Dallas. Anthony Black is from Dallas. Jordan Walsh is from Dallas. Cason Wallace is from Dallas. You can go on and on and on and on and on. And so Chris Beard's basically like, if we can just keep those kids home, supplement in the portal, we're going to have a top five team every year. And so now with NIL the way that it is, we know Texas ain't lacking in NIL. Why can't Chris Beard in Texas, with Chris, even with Chris Beard being gone, why can't Rodney Terry in Texas, why can't Rodney Terry take the same blueprint that Chris Beard had and keep Texas at a high level? Don't know what's going to happen. Don't know what they'll do. My opinion is I believe they should keep Rodney Terry. Have no idea if they will. Finally, really quick, let's get to the other game on Saturday. That was Florida Atlantic taking care of business against Kansas State. You know, just another wild game, right? You know, Florida Atlantic is up early. Florida Atlantic, uh, uh, you know, rallies out of the, you know, Kansas State goes up big in the second half. Florida Atlantic rallies. Florida Atlantic ends up winning 79-76 when Kansas State and Marquise Noel could not get a shot off in the end. No real thoughts on this game, really outside of a few things, is one, this Florida Atlantic team is just really good. Like, at some point, we got to forget what conference they came from or what their star ratings were or how much we knew about them. This is just a really good team. Took care of Tennessee on Thursday. Took care of Kansas State. I thought they really actually did a pretty good job. They made Mar Marquise Noel uncomfortable, which sounds crazy because he had 30 points and 10 assists, but he also had five turnovers. Um, they took Keontae Johnson out of the game with foul trouble. They attacked him pretty well. I just think they're like a well-coached, well-balanced team. What I would also say, and if we have any Florida Atlantic fans, I'm sure you're going to be offended by this. Doesn't this team also kind of show you the fickle nature of this tournament? Because think about it. 
you can legitimately like Memphis had that team dead to rights in round one. Memphis had them beat. There was a controversial ball, loose ball on the floor. Memphis, you know, if you watch the video, Memphis calls a timeout. They don't give them the timeout. It's a it's a possession arrow. Uh, possession arrow goes to Florida Atlantic. They come down and score. They end up winning the game. And so it's kind of crazy. I think you can legitimately argue Florida Atlantic's toughest game was in round one against Memphis. By the way, I think you can legitimately argue Miami's toughest game of the NCAA tournament was round one against Drake. And it's funny, like, think about who would we be talking about going to the Final Four if Drake had won that game? Like, if Drake had beaten Miami, Indiana's probably playing Houston and go to the Elite Eight. Houston's probably playing Texas, and either Houston or Texas is in this game. Instead, Miami rallies to win. They're going to the Final Four, and it's the same in this bracket with Florida Atlantic. Florida Atlantic loses that game. It's now Memphis playing a 16 seed Fairleigh Dickinson to go to the Sweet 16. They're playing their cross-state rival in Tennessee in the Garden on Thursday night. And we're talking about either Memphis or Tennessee playing Kansas State, and all of a sudden this Final Four and that Elite Eight game has a much different feel. But Florida Atlantic gets the win, and the only thing I can really say is a couple things. Is One, let me just say this. I hope that the Florida Atlantic story is a sign that we need more Florida Atlantic type teams in the NCAA tournament. And what I mean by that is this, and and I got into an argument with people on social media, surprise, surprise, but basically the way that I look at it is pretty straightforward. Okay. If Florida Atlantic had not made the NC, if Florida Atlantic had not won their conference tournament, they're probably in the NCAA tournament. But I don't think there's a guarantee. And when I say don't win the conference tournament, I mean, I don't mean losing the championship game at the buzzer. I mean, if they lose at any point, I think it's at least a debate. They're a nine seed right now. They're tw- they're 35 and three. But seven of those wins have come since the start of the Conference USA tournament. So if they lose in round one of the Conference USA tournament, they played Western Kentucky, it would have been a quad three loss. They had really no great wins on their schedule. And this is a team, if they lost in the opener of the Conference USA tournament, I think there's a reasonable chance that they're not in the NCAA tournament. And so one of the things, I will be at the Final Four this week, try to figure out dates and times and all this and all that. But one of the things I want to do is ask Dusty May, like, is this proof that we need more teams like Florida Atlantic? Florida Atlantic can play with anybody. They've proven it. Oh, by the way, their conference, I know it's the NIT, but their conference has two teams in the NIT, North Texas and UAB. North Texas is a team that finished the year 26-7, and 16 and four in league play. UAB finished 25 and nine, 14 and six in league play. And I have to go back and I don't know who would be. The point I'm trying to make is one, I believe if we put more Florida Atlantic type teams in the NCAA tournament, we'd probably get more Florida Atlantic type stories. And I would much rather see them than a Michigan or a Wisconsin or a whomever that was on the bubble. Now, again, this specific Florida Atlantic team, probably would have been in. But I think, again, if they lose in the opening round of their conference tournament, I don't know that they're in. And so it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to monitor, especially, by the way, Greg Sankey's pushing for conference, uh, for NCAA tournament expansion. And we all know what Greg Sankey wants, Greg Sankey generally gets. And so I bring it up to say, if we're going to expand the NCAA tournament, I sure do hope that it is not to get more 
you know, and I always use the example, but, you know, bottom tier Big Ten teams, bottom tier ACC teams, 17 and 14 SEC teams get the best teams in. I believe more schools like Florida Atlantic deserve a shot. Finally, from K-State's perspective, listen, a couple things. One, Jerome Tang, unbelievable first year for him as a head coach. He took over a program that had two returning players, Marquise Noel, Ish Masood. That's it. And what I really respect about him is two things. And I think I talked about this after they beat Kentucky last Monday. This was a guy that never saw the negatives of this job. Picked to finish 10th. Finished 10th last year. Two players returning. I talked to him over the summer. I interviewed him for something, not on this show. And he only talked about the positives. He said, we're in the Big 12. We play in an arena called the Octagon of Doom. That's awesome. We have great history. He talked about it after the Kentucky game. We have great history too. And he always looked at the positives. He was always believing in what K-State could be rather than harping on the negatives. And I respect the hell out of that. And so year one, he sets the tone. And I think he's going to keep this rolling. Now, no Marquise Noel next year. I haven't taken the time to really look at the roster. But I think there's still going to be a very good team in the Big 12 going forward. And this guy knows how to navigate the portal. I thought he did a great job finding pieces that fit, guys that fit, all of that. And then finally, Marquise Noel. Listen, I don't know who's going to win the championship. I don't know what the story of this tournament will be. But I know Marquise Noel will be one of them. Now, is the story no no ones or two seeds in the Final Four? Maybe. Is the story, um, you know, uh, whatever, Purdue losing to a 16 seed? Maybe. Is the story Florida Atlantic? We don't know where their season will end. It will end in Houston, but will it end with a national championship? Marquise Noel will forever be remembered. Unbelievable. Great game against Kentucky. The assist record against Michigan State. And so I'm just so looking forward to to every year. Think about it. Any year that a guy gets 13 assists or 12 assists, well, he's still, he's chasing Marquise Noel. Remember in 2023 when Marquise Noel had 19 assists against Michigan State? in the Sweet 16, in his home city, at Madison Square Garden. So happy for Marquise Noel. Don't know what his future holds. He'll play professional basketball somewhere. And finally, Final Four set, man. Final Four is set. How about that? UConn in Miami. UConn is now. So, by the way, we have lines out from Betfred Sportsbook. UConn, a five-and-a-half-point favorite in the Betfred Sportsbook over Miami. I think that's that feels way too much to me. We got plenty of time to break it down. Those Miami guards scare the crap out of me. Um, and then, oh, by the way, San Diego State, a one-and-a-half-point favorite against Florida Atlantic. But that said, I do think it is time for me to get out of here. Like I said, listen, we are going to have plenty of time to break down these games going forward. And so, you know, I'm not going to get into my picks and my this and my that over the next couple of days. We got plenty of time to react to all that. But with that said, before we get out of here, want to remind everybody, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. A reminder, UConn. Fans, by the way, anybody in in um in Houston this week, we will be doing something on Friday, date and time. Well, time TBA, location TBA, but it will be going on. DM me for details. DM me to make you sure you get on the list. I will have details on the next show. Probably will be a Wednesday show, certainly a Friday show, 
and make sure you're following me on social media where you can get information from there. That said, time for me to get out of here. Appreciate everybody's support. Shout out to Torn Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, you have fed unblock me, bro. I'll be back Wednesday, new episode of the Aaron Torres pod. Also, we'll do some YouTube exclusive content to th- this week. Make sure you subscribe there. See you later, party people.